Welcome to Quantum Magazine's Science Podcast. Come for the science, stay for the stories. For news, interviews, videos, graphics, and more, visit quantummagazine.org. This week on the podcast, there are a variety of different ways nature determines an organism's sex. How can such a fundamental property be so variable? Then, in our second segment, three computer scientists have solved a problem central to a dozen far-flung mathematical fields. First, The Incredible Shrinking Sex Chromosome by Emily Singer Jennifer Marshall Graves, an Australian biologist, is probably best known for a dire prediction. The human Y chromosome, which makes males male, could disappear in the next 5 million years. In the last 190 million years, the number of genes on the Y has plummeted from more than 1,000 to roughly 50, a loss of more than 95%. The X chromosome, in contrast, stands strong at roughly 1,000 genes. Media reaction has been predictable, with overheated headlines proclaiming men on road to extinction. But Graves, a biologist at La Trobe University in Melbourne, notes that 5 million years is a long time for a species such as ours, which is only 200,000 years old. More importantly, the loss of the Y chromosome might not spell disaster. If the Y does disappear, we may well develop a new mechanism for making men. Scientists are discovering that the mechanisms that organisms use to determine sex are in a remarkable state of flux. When one system is destroyed, evolution seems to easily come up with a new one. Birds, fish, and snakes have found myriad ways of making males and females. Sex chromosomes are frequently lost or swapped. Even closely related species can determine sex in quite different ways, suggesting that the system is highly flexible and evolving rapidly. Recent studies of these different animals are helping scientists understand what happens when sex chromosomes shrink and disappear. Sex determination is probably the most fundamental decision you make. It has huge implications for morphology, behavior, life history, said Katie Paikal, a biologist at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center in Seattle. Given that this is a super fundamental process, how come it seems like every organism came up with its own mechanism for doing it? A sex chromosome is simply a chromosome that determines whether an organism will be male or female. Scientists can often narrow this function down to one particular gene on the chromosome. That sex-determining gene will activate a sex-specific developmental cascade, turning on the biological factories that produce, for instance, the testes in males. Humans and most other mammals use the familiar XY system. A gene on the Y chromosome triggers the development of sperm, determining male sex. Birds use a ZW system, where the pairing pattern is reversed. Males are ZZ and females are ZW. The letters indicate the mode of inheritance. Y chromosomes are inherited strictly from father to son, the W from mother to daughter. All mammals use the same gene to control sex. All birds use another. And for many years, scientists underestimated the variety of other systems across the animal kingdom. Over the last decade, however, researchers have been able to read genomes from a much broader variety of animals. Graves and others have found sex-determining systems that are surprisingly diverse. We had been hamstrung, 
because we could only look at humans and mice, Graves said. But now we can look at bearded dragons and the half-smooth-tongued soul, and there's lots of variation out there. Lizards, amphibians, and fish, in particular, frequently change the systems used to control sex. One species of tropical frogs has three different sex chromosomes, Y, W, and Z. Males can be YZ, YW, or ZZ, and females can be ZW or WW. How these strange systems function is poorly understood, said Doris Boktrog, a biologist at UC Berkeley. We know little beyond the model organisms. The bearded dragon, a lizard name for the spiky scales circling its head, is perhaps the most striking example of sexual fluidity. This creature typically uses a genetic system to determine sex. ZZs develop as males and ZWs as female. But in 2007, Graves and collaborators showed that they could convert the lizard's genetically controlled system to a temperature-driven one. Lizard eggs raised at higher temperatures developed into females regardless of their genetic identity. Temperature-controlled sex determination wasn't itself a surprise. Many reptiles, such as crocodiles, follow this method. But before Graves' study, scientists thought that individual species used one mechanism or the other. The switch with bearded dragons revealed an unexpected level of interchangeability. In a study published in Nature last summer, researchers pushed the system even further. They found dragons in the wild that were female, even though they were genetically male, or ZZ. They then mated these females with typical ZZ males. These odd couples produced fertile ZZ offspring, whose sex relied solely on temperature. In effect, researchers eliminated the W chromosome in a single generation. The human wise demise will take longer, but Graves believes that its fate was likely sealed at its origin. After it acquired the first sex-determining gene, other sex-specific genes, those that are helpful to males but not to females, began clustering around the new sex-determination site. Pieces of the chromosome flipped around, which eventually blocked the Y from pairing with its mate, the X. That, in turn, prevented a form of genetic housecleaning known as recombination, which helps rid chromosomes of mistakes. Unable to repair itself, the Y began its journey of decay. Sex chromosomes are sort of self-destructing, Graves said. Adding a sex-determining gene to any chromosome puts it in great danger. Graves notes that a number of rodents seem to be experimenting with new sex determination systems. Several no longer possess an active version of SRY, the gene that triggers male developments in most mammals. Two mice populations living on islands in Japan have lost their Y chromosomes altogether. In all of these cases, individual populations have come up with new ways of making males, although researchers aren't sure how they do it. Probably another gene on another chromosome has assumed the responsibility. Eventually, this new sex chromosome will likely degrade, just like our Y, Graves said. What's more, these changes may drive development of new species, which seems to be happening in stickleback fish. Three-spine sticklebacks have a strange mating ritual. First, male sticklebacks build a nest and perform a dance to attract a mate. Then, the males whose backs are dotted with spines, swim beneath the females and prick them. Thus entranced, a female will lay eggs in her bow's nest. He fertilizes them and chases the female away, and then provides the eggs with parental care. 
sticklebacks are a favorite among evolutionary biologists because they have evolved enormous diversity in both appearance and behavior on a relatively short evolutionary timescale. This diversity extends to their sex chromosomes. In some species, the male has two different chromosomes, as with humans. In other species, the female has them. Two closely related species of sticklebacks in Japan have proved particularly interesting. The groups diverged about two million years ago when some fish were trapped in the Sea of Japan by an icy barrier. The two species can be found breeding in the same locale, waters around the island of Hokkaido, but not with each other. Both populations perform the pricking part of the mating dance, but with some significant differences. Males from the Pacific gently prick their would-be mates, while males from the Sea of Japan give them a great shove. As soon as the male does the aggressive pricking behavior, the Pacific female says, forget it, I'm out of here, Paikal said. The reverse pair, Pacific males and females from the Sea of Japan, will mate in the lab, but their male offspring are sterile. In addition, fish from the Sea of Japan have a chromosomal oddity. The Y chromosome is fused to the paternal copy of chromosome 9. The maternal copy of chromosome 9 becomes a new sex chromosome, dubbed the Neo-X. And on this Neo-X lie the genes that drive the fish's aggressive behavior. The findings link a new sex chromosome with a mating barrier, and ultimately, a new species. But which came first? Did the chromosome fusion make it impossible for the two groups to mate, eventually leading to differences in their mating dance, or did the new mating behavior precede the chromosomal change? No one knows, but recent data show that genetic differences in the fish are concentrated on the sex chromosomes. According to Paikal, that strongly suggests that sex chromosome evolution leads to new species. There are really no cases in which we know what caused speciation, because it's really hard to go back in time to figure it out, she said. But it is one of the rare cases where there is a direct link between chromosome rearrangement and speciation mechanism. Lizards, fish, and rodents seem to survive major changes to their sex chromosomes. But what about humans? Are we in danger of losing the Y? That's a matter of debate. For Graves, the answer is yes. Based on the number of genes on the Y chromosome and the rate of genes lost per million years, she estimates it will disappear in 4.6 million years. Other researchers have challenged Graves' dire predictions for the Y. A study published in Nature in 2012 found very little change over the last 25 million years. Since we diverged from old-world monkeys, the Y chromosome has lost just one gene. Graves' response is that sex chromosome changes occur in fits and starts, so it's impossible to predict whether the current pattern of stability will last. For many scientists studying sex chromosomes, the long-term status of the Y chromosome isn't the most interesting issue. They want to understand more fundamental questions, such as why sex chromosomes exist at all. In pufferfish, for example, sex is determined by a single letter of DNA. If such a simple system works, why have we progressed to the massive differences between the human X and Y? said Judith Mank, an evolutionary biologist at University College, London. 
Moreover, scientists have found animals whose sex chromosomes seem to resist decay, including some frog species with ancient sex chromosomes that have undergone little change over the millennia. Mank, Paikal, Boktrog, and others have begun to assemble a database of sex chromosome information dubbed the Tree of Sex, which they hope will answer some of these big questions. By mapping out sex determination across the tree of life, Mank said, we hope to understand how sex determination evolves and to try to test theories about what sort of selection pressures might be driving the change. Second, Outsiders Crack 50-Year-Old Math Problem by Erica Klareich In 2008, Daniel Spielman told his Yale colleague, Gil Kalai, about a computer science problem he was working on concerning how to sparsify a network so that it has fewer connections between nodes but still preserves the essential features of the original network. Network sparsification has applications in data compression and efficient computation. But Spielman's particular problem suggested something different to Kalai. It seemed connected to the famous Cadison-Singer problem, a question about the foundations of quantum physics that had remained unsolved for almost 50 years. Over the decades, the Cadison-Singer problem had wormed its way into a dozen distant areas of mathematics and engineering, but no one seemed to be able to crack it. The question defied the best efforts of some of the most talented mathematicians of the last 50 years, wrote Peter Kazaza and Janet Tremaine of the University of Missouri in Columbia in a 2014 survey article. As a computer scientist, Spielman knew little of quantum mechanics or the Cadison-Singer problem's allied mathematical field called C-star algebras. But when Kalai, whose main institution is the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, described one of the problem's many equivalent formulations, Spielman realized that he himself might be in the perfect position to solve it. It seems so natural, so central to the kinds of things I think about, he said. I thought, I've got to be able to prove that. He guessed that the problem might take him a few weeks. Instead, it took him five years. In 2013, working with his postdoc, Adam Marcus, now at Princeton, and his graduate student, Nikhil Srivastava, now at UC Berkeley, Spielman finally succeeded. Word spread quickly through the mathematics community that one of the paramount problems in C-star algebras and a host of other fields had been solved by three outsiders, computer scientists who had barely a nodding acquaintance with the disciplines at the heart of the problem. Mathematicians in these disciplines greeted the news with a combination of delight and hand-wringing. The solution, which Kazaza and Tremaine called a major achievement of our time, defied expectations about how the problem would be solved and seemed bafflingly foreign. Over the past two years, the experts in the Cadison-Singer problem have had to work hard to assimilate the ideas of the proof. Spielman, Marcus, and Srivastava brought a bunch of tools into this problem that none of us had ever heard of, Kazaza said. 
A lot of us loved this problem and were dying to see it solved, and we had a lot of trouble understanding how they solved it. The people who have the deep intuition about why these methods work are not the people who have been working on these problems for a long time, said Terence Tao of UCLA, who has been following these developments. Mathematicians have held several workshops to unite these disparate camps, but the proof may take several more years to digest, Tao said. We don't have the manual for this magic tool yet. Computer scientists, however, have been quick to exploit the new techniques. Last year, for instance, two researchers parlayed these tools into a major leap forward in understanding the famously difficult traveling salesman problem. There are certain to be more such advances, said Asaf Naor, a mathematician at Princeton who works in areas related to the Cadison-Singer problem. This is too profound to not have many more applications. The question Richard Cadison and Isidore Singer posed in 1959 asks how much it is possible to learn about a state of a quantum system if you have complete information about that state in a special subsystem. Inspired by an informally worded comment by the legendary physicist Paul Dirac, their question builds on Werner Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, which says that certain pairs of attributes, like the position and the momentum of a particle, cannot simultaneously be measured to arbitrary precision. Cadison and Singer wondered about subsystems that contain as many different attributes, or observables, as can compatibly be measured at the same time. If you have complete knowledge of the state of such a subsystem, they asked, can you deduce the state of the entire system? In the case where the system you're measuring is a particle that can move along a continuous line, Cadison and Singer show that the answer is no. There can be many different quantum states that all look the same, from the point of view of the observables you can simultaneously measure. It is as if many different particles have exactly the same location simultaneously. In a sense, they are in parallel universes, Cadison wrote by email, although he cautioned that it's not yet clear whether such states can be realized physically. Cadison and Singer's result didn't say what would happen if the space in which the particle lives is not a continuous line but is instead some choppier version of the line. If space is granular, as Cadison put it, this is the question that came to be known as the Cadison-Singer problem. Based on their work in the continuous setting, Cadison and Singer guessed that in this new setting, the answer would again be that there are parallel universes. But they didn't go so far as to state their guess as a conjecture, a wise move in hindsight, since their gut instinct turned out to be wrong. I'm happy I've been careful, Cadison said. Cadison and Singer, now at the University of Pennsylvania and MIT, respectively, posed their question at a moment when interest in the philosophical foundations of quantum mechanics was entering a renaissance. Although some physicists were promoting a shut-up-and-calculate approach to the discipline, other, more mathematically inclined physicists pounced on the Cadison-Singer problem, which they understood as a question about C-star algebras, abstract structures that capture the algebraic properties not just of quantum systems, but also of the random variables used in probability theory, the blocks of numbers called matrices, and regular numbers. C-star algebras are an esoteric subject, the most abstract nonsense that exists in mathematics, in Kazaza's words. Nobody outside the area knows much about it. 
For the first two decades of the Cadison Singer problem's existence, it remained ensconced in this impenetrable realm. Then, in 1979, Joel Anderson, now an emeritus professor at Penn State, popularized the problem by proving that it is equivalent to an easily stated question about when matrices can be broken down into simpler chunks. Matrices are the core objects in linear algebra, which is used to study mathematical phenomena whose behavior can be captured by lines, planes, and higher-dimensional spaces. So suddenly, the Cadison-Singer problem was everywhere. Over the decades that followed, it emerged as the key problem in one field after another. Because there tended to be scant interaction between these disparate fields, no one realized just how ubiquitous the Cadison-Singer problem had become until Casaza found that it was equivalent to the most important problem in his own area of signal processing. The problem concerned whether the processing of a signal can be broken down into smaller, simpler parts. Casaza dived into the Cadison-Singer problem, and in 2005, he, Tremaine, and two co-authors wrote a paper demonstrating that it was equivalent to the biggest unsolved problems in a dozen areas of math and engineering. A solution to any one of these problems, the authors showed, would solve them all. One of the many equivalent formulations they wrote about had been devised just a few years earlier by Nick Weaver of Washington University in St. Louis. Weaver's version distilled the problem down to a natural-sounding question about when it is possible to divide a collection of vectors into two groups, that at each point, in roughly the same set of directions as the original collection. It's a beautiful problem that brought out the core combinatorial problem at the heart of the Cadison-Singer question, Weaver said. So Weaver was surprised when, apart from the mention in Kazaza's survey and one other paper that expressed skepticism about his approach, his formulation seemed to meet with radio silence. He thought no one had noticed his paper, but in fact, it had attracted the attention of just the right people to solve it. When Spielman learned about Weaver's conjecture in 2008, he knew it was his kind of problem. There's a natural way to switch between networks and collections of vectors, and Spielman had spent the preceding several years building up a powerful new approach to networks by viewing them as physical objects. If a network is thought of as an electrical circuit, for example, then the amount of current that runs through a given edge, instead of finding alternate routes, provides a natural way to measure that edge's importance in the network. Spielman discovered Weaver's conjecture after Kalaï introduced him to another form of the Cadison-Singer problem, and he realized that it was nearly identical to a simple question about networks. When is it possible to divide up the edges of a network into two categories, say, red edges and blue edges, so that the resulting red and blue networks have similar electrical properties to the whole network? It's not always possible to do this. For instance, if the original network consists of two highly connected clusters that are linked to each other by a single edge, then that edge has an outsize importance in the network. So if that critical edge is colored red, then the blue network can't have similar electrical properties to the whole network. In fact, the blue network won't even be connected. Weaver's problem asks whether this is the only type of obstacle to breaking down networks into similar but smaller ones. In other words, if there are enough ways to get around in a network, if no individual edge is too important, can the network be broken down into two subnetworks with similar electrical properties? 
Spielman, Marcus, and Srivastava suspected that the answer was yes, and their intuition did not just stem from their previous work on network sparsification. They also ran millions of simulations without finding any counterexamples. A lot of our stuff was led by experimentation, Marcus said. Twenty years ago, the three of us sitting in the same room would not have solved this problem. The simulations convinced them that they were on the right track, even as the problem raised one stumbling block after another. And they kept making spurts of progress, enough to keep them hooked. When Marcus's postdoctoral fellowship expired at the end of the team's fourth year working on the problem, he elected to leave academia temporarily and join a local startup called Crisply, rather than leave New Haven. I worked for my company four days a week, and then once a week or so, I would go to Yale, he said. A network's electrical properties are governed by a special equation called the network's characteristic polynomial. As the trio performed computer experiments on these polynomials, they found that the equations seemed to have hidden structure. Their solutions were always real numbers, as opposed to complex numbers, and surprisingly, adding these polynomials together always seemed to result in a new polynomial with that same property. These polynomials were doing more than we gave them credit for, Marcus said. We used them as a way of transferring knowledge, but really, the polynomials seemed to be containing knowledge themselves. Piece by piece, the researchers developed a new technique for working with so-called interlacing polynomials to capture this underlying structure. And finally, on June 17, 2013, Marcus sent an email to Weaver, who had been his undergraduate advisor at Washington University 10 years earlier. I hope you remember me, Marcus wrote. The reason I am writing is because we think we have solved your conjecture. The one that you showed was equivalent to Cadison Singer. Within days, news of the team's achievement had spread across the blogosphere. The proof, which has since been thoroughly vetted, is highly original, Nawar said. What I love about it is just this feeling of freshness, he said. That's why we want to solve open problems. For the rare events when somebody comes up with a solution that's so different from what was before that it just completely changes our perspective. Computer scientists have already applied this new point of view to the asymmetric traveling salesman problem. In the traveling salesman problem, a salesman must travel through a series of cities with the goal of minimizing the total distance traveled. The asymmetric version includes situations in which the distance from A to B differs from the distance from B to A. For instance, if the route includes one-way streets. The best-known algorithm for finding approximate solutions to the asymmetric problem dates back to 1970, but no one knew how good its approximations were. Now, using ideas from the proof of the Cadison-Singer problem, Nima Anari of UC Berkeley and Cheyenne Obies Garan of the University of Washington in Seattle have shown that this algorithm performs exponentially better than people had realized. The new result is major, major progress, Nauer said. The proof of the Cadison-Singer problem implies that all the constructions in its dozen incarnations can, in principle, be carried out. Quantum knowledge can be extended to full quantum systems, networks can be decomposed into electrically similar ones, matrices can be broken into simpler chunks. The proof won't change what quantum physicists do, but it could have applications in signal processing, 
since it implies that collections of vectors used to digitize signals can be broken down into smaller frames that can be processed faster. The theorem has potential to affect some important engineering problems, Kazaza said. But there's a big gulf between principle and practice. The proof establishes that these various constructions exist, but it doesn't say how to carry them out. At present, Kazaza says, there isn't a chance in hell of pulling a useful algorithm out of the proof. However, now that mathematicians know that the question has a positive answer, he hopes that a constructive proof will be forthcoming, not to mention a proof that mathematicians in his field can actually understand. All of us were completely convinced it had a negative answer, so none of us was actually trying to prove it, he said. Mathematicians in the fields in which the Cadison-Singer problem has been prominent may feel wistful that three outsiders came in and solved their central problem. But that's not what really happened, Marcus said. The only reason we could even try to solve such a problem is because people in that field had already removed all the hardness that was happening in C-star algebras, he said. There was just one piece left, and that piece wasn't a problem they had the techniques to solve. I think the reason why this problem lasted 50 years is because it really had two parts that were hard. Throughout the five years he spent working on the Cadison-Singer problem, Marcus said, I don't think I could have told you what the problem was in the C-star algebra language, because I had no clue. The fact that he, Srivastava, and Spielman were able to solve it says something about what I hope will be the future of mathematics, he said. When mathematicians import ideas across fields, that's when I think these really interesting jumps in knowledge happen. You're listening to Quantum Magazine's Science Podcast with music by Poddington Bear. I'm Leah Alfonso. For news, interviews, graphics, and more, visit quantummagazine.org.